Welcome to Kratom Sobriety. This is episode 31, and I'm Jacob. And I'm Charlie. And this week we have an interview with Nick. He is a 12-stepper, which is how he describes himself. He's also into fitness. He's been off Kratom, I believe, for three years, and it's a great interview. And Jacob, I believe you have a special guest that you did an interview that we're going to drop on Wednesday. Could you tell us a, a little bit about that? Yeah, I had a really good conversation with Wendy Halpin. Wendy is a mother whose son unfortunately passed away to Kratom. Well, we get into that in the conversation, but it's it's a really good conversation talking about, you know, her experience with the passing of her son, how that led her to wanting to spread a little bit of knowledge about you know, the fact that Kratom can kill. And, you know, she runs a, a Facebook group that we'll, we'll talk about and we'll share some information on when the episode drops. And um, we also talk a bit about kind of her goals and uh, whatnot for what she wants to see in the Kratom market when it comes to regulation, which are very sort of similar to, to views that I think Charlie and I have expressed. So it's a, it's a really good conversation and I think you're all going to enjoy it. Yeah, on the subject of regulation, I, I got an interesting comment on YouTube. It read as follows. The caffeine comparison is ridiculous. In my experience, moderate addiction to Kratom leads to opiate light withdrawal, and heavy addiction leads to withdrawals right up there with other opioids. The post-acute withdrawals can take up to a year to fully calm down. It took me years to kick going off and on it because responsibilities would pile up while I was trying to recover. I'm not for banning it, but a lot of these advocates are either ignorant or lying. I know everybody doesn't have hard withdrawals from it, but many people do. And to pretend that it, it doesn't create tolerance, that doesn't make you high at, at certain doses, and that there isn't considerable withdrawals, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. It's kind of like this mentality of like, don't snitch on Kratom, because if you talk about the negatives too much, it's like giving fuel to the government to like ban it, which is not what our intention, but it's like, we got to talk about this like in real terms, you know? Yeah, that, I, I agree with everything you said. That comment resonates with me as well. I, I definitely uh, feel him on all of that, particularly the, the took me years to kick thing. Same same experience, and uh, my my post acute withdrawals were always terrible. Um, probably that's what that's what what mostly led me to relapse. I think it's a just a flawed strategy too, to be honest. Like I I remember before recreational marijuana was a thing, and there was just limited medical marijuana. A lot of marijuana advocates were like. There's nothing, there's never anything wrong with marijuana. It's always great. It's the greatest substance on earth. And, you know, it was disingenuous. Like, I would say the danger profile of marijuana is lower than kratom or alcohol, but there are people that have problems with it and it's not a panacea. So I think, you know, it's, it's just a, it's just a stupid way to, to, to approach something in my opinion, but, but that's, that's just me. His comment was, I posted this video of some AKA representatives at a hearing in Ohio pairing Diet Coke to a Kratom dependency. That I just think which is a ludicrous thing. And yeah, and actually I wrote a whole post about it. So you can go to our website if you want to <laughs> read me rant about it in multi-syllable words. You found an interesting article about the growth of the Kratom sector? 
Yeah, I did. So this is an article from a research firm called Maximize Market Research. They did a study from 2017 to 2022 on the global Kratom market. And basically, their their overview states that Kratom primary source from Southeast Asian countries, as, as we all uh, know. And the most interesting thing in this study is they have a, a market share by region statistic and a growth by region. The market share is 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 pretty interesting. Um, there's a very big concentrated market share in both North America and Europe, as well as uh, in Southeast Asia, where kratom is is sourced from, and, and very little um, activity outside of those regions. And the most interesting thing is in in North America, there's been a 600% increase over the past five years. So. The study was 2017 to 2022. In Europe, there was a 200% increase. Australia, a 400%. And in Southeast Asia, a 100% increase over the past five years. So six more times the amount of people are taking Kratom in North America in 2022 than were in 2017. And um, that kind of growth is just insane. Like you, you rarely see that for any product um, in the in the business world. So I just thought that was fascinating and also a bit concerning because I think probably a lot of those people have heard what we all heard when we started taking the substance. And, you know, at best, they probably think that maybe there's some potential for, for dependence, but I, I think a lot of them don't know what they're getting into. And um, we're going to see that reverberate through. Yeah, that's really interesting, Jeremy. We'll put the link in the show notes for, for so listeners can check that out themselves. Yep. You know, in prep for this discussion, I pulled up our statistics about listenership. 96% of our listeners are in the United States as expected. It looks like South Dakota is the only state not represented yet in the six months that we've been on the air. And yeah, we just celebrated on October 30th, six months. Awesome. So worldwide, the next country is Canada, of course, a bunch of European countries, including the Czech Republic, where they recently, they regulated it before it was kind of sold, not for human consumption, kind of like a die kind of situation. European countries, Austria, uh, Netherlands, Germany, Hungary, Poland, a couple of those I know are uh, banned countries. Yeah, and then got two listeners in Libya. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so yeah, the, the, the podcast has been growing. We, we're at almost at 16,000 downloads. I think we're getting about 250 regular listeners from what I can tell from the stats. Each episode gets about 350 listens, which is great because the first month in May, we got 350 listens the whole month, you know, so it's great to have each episode in one week, they get yeah. about, we get about 350 listens. Yeah, we get, like, each day, you can tell if you look at the statistics, somebody or two or three people will binge the whole thing, because you'll see all the episodes, you know, got three listens, you know, so somebody... I assume those might be people that are like withdrawing hard, you know. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I know. I uh, when I when I started my uh, medicated, well, I I was kind of through my um initial getting through the acute stage, but I I kind of binged the first couple episodes that was available, and I found the podcast for what it's worth. So kratom, 
like it, the statistics you showed appears to be a growing thing in America and around the world. And I mean, you, I witnessed that even just every time I drive around, it seems like I notice a new Kratom location or something. I was just in um, in New York City this last weekend, and um, I noticed a lot more smoke shops offering. I didn't go in any, but um, they had the you know the signs that, yeah. that they have in the in the shops: kratom, CBD, Delta something or other that I wasn't familiar with, but um, and I, I don't plan on getting familiar with for for what it's worth. But um, anyways, um, I, I think it's 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 growing pretty massively. We also got a, a good email from a listener this week. Um, so this is from Dr. Mango. This is a low from Kauai. This is my umpteenth time on day one. Made it five months clean from April to August this year. Never thought I would ever use again. Then it happened. That was two months ago. Had many clean days since I was just a week ago. I was on day 10 before I relapsed. Having a really hard time. Mahalo. Well, thank you for the email, Dr. Mango. Mahalo to you. I hope at least you can maybe enjoy some of the sunshine while you're while you're going through it again. And I'm I'm sorry you're you're struggling a bit, but but we've all been there. Um, I've 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 been there so many so many day ones. And quite honestly, I I, I was kind of shocked when I found myself even addicted to kratom because I, I spent so long trying to to get off booze and, and finally beat that addiction, only to to find myself back in in the kratom pickle. So yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. tough out there sometimes. So Why? we have 15 downloads from Hawaii. So we might have one sole listener if, you know, depending on how many episodes he's he's uh, listened to. So, all right. I think that that is a wrap for this week and it's time for the interview. All right. Right, folks, this week we have an interview with Nick. And why don't you introduce yourself and let our audience know who you are? Hi, thanks, Charlie. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, yeah, my name is uh, Nick T. I am 44 years old. I'm a personal trainer and I live in Los Angeles, California. And my partner, right. I just had a baby. Ah, how much sleep you get in these days? Ah, uh, wow! I had a, I had a lot last night. I had about forty five minutes twice. It was it was great. <laughs> uh, minor teenagers now they they keep you up at night for different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I hear those types of stories. Like, oh, goody, honey, you got me into something for a couple of decades here, didn't you? When did you quit kratom? So, as of November twenty first, third this month. Um, it will be three years since I went to an AA meeting with about four, three to four hundred dollars worth of kratom, weed, bongs, some little microdose shroom pills that I had no business having at all. And uh, the AA group was a stag meeting. We were outdoors and they all just took my stuff and dumped it in the garbage can for me. And that was the last time I touched it. So. Excellent. I love that story. And we appreciate the kind of the it's a longer sobriety for compared to most of our guests it's i'm really excited to, to hear what you have to say and I, i'm sure others will too well thank you how and when did you first use kratom 
Okay, so I'm going to try to tell these stories as linearly as I possibly can. Um, <laughs> it was, I, I had been working in Los Angeles at a kitchen for a while, um, and we served Italian food and these big deep dish pizzas, and I had these, you know, these things are like 20 pounds, carrying lots of them. Over the course of time, I started developing some hernias, inguinal hernias, the ones that men get, you know, and I finally had to go get surgery on that. And I was taking about three or four weeks off of that job. I, long story short, I never went back to it, but um, they, I had the surgery and they gave me Vicodin and, you know, being an addict already, I was, and that was, oh, goody, those one time in my life, I get prescribed Vicodin, get to pretend I'm just taking it medicinally or whatever. And, um, yeah, I immediately within a few days started abusing that stuff again, like taking three or four of them instead of one. And I ended up having a phone conversation with an old friend of mine who currently lives in Florida, who's a big Kratom advocate. And I was telling him about my hernia and how, yeah, I'm on Vicodin. I'm going to run out of these quick enough. And he's like, well, instead of messing with that stuff again, you should try this miracle god-given plant called kratom that was just put on this earth just for people like you and me he didn't say that but it was a there was a lot of that in his attitude it was like this stuff is just great i take it every day and you know it's legal and it's so much better for you you, you know you don't have to worry about overdosing or anything it's not going to hurt your organs the way vicodin and tylenol are gonna you can function and you can take it forever like coffee in fact, it's a cousin of the coffee plant. Didn't you know that if it grows in the ground and it's a cousin of the coffee plant, it's harmless and it's only as addictive as coffee. So you don't even have to worry about it. And I don't know if you've ever heard that statement, like it's only as addictive as coffee. I got to tell you right now, coffee is the hardest drug I've ever had to even try to think about quitting. And it's pretty darn addictive. So don't let stupid statements like that like, muddle up your thinking. I went out to a, a local head shop here and I found the right one because a lot of head shops just have it in little bottles, prepackaged. A lot of times you don't even know what you're getting, but this place was like a, it, it was almost like one of those fine cigar shops. It had that kind of feel to it. It had like yeah, wood. It seemed a little classier. It was in a hipper neighborhood. It wasn't in like a shady place. And they had these, I, I like I said before when we were talking before the show, they had these gigantic glass mason jars about a gallon in volume, and there's probably like I don't know fifty of them filled with this green plant matter powder words on all of the jars that I'd never heard Malay, Mangda, white, green, red, Baba Booey, or whatever that other stuff is, and. You know, they had a they had a name for it was like cannabis. You know, there's like a million different strains mm -hmm. and all that stuff. But my friend had armed me with enough information to go out and get my first. Uh, he he called it a serving, I think, but I call it a dose now. Looking back at it, nine. He said, "Go buy nine grams of green Malay, and you'll feel just great because it'll keep you awake. Because the green stuff keeps you awake. The white stuff's too speedy for me, and the red stuff's you know puts you to sleep at night." Bought nine grams of green Malay in a little pouch. It was a dollar a gram. And I was like, well, this is a cheap habit. Uh, that That's not true either. I took, the <laughs> nine, I took the nine grams home to my house. And 
I I think he told me to mix it with some citrus, like grapefruit juice or something. I got like a lemonade and mixed it together and had this little cup of sludge with lemonade mixed in with it. And he said, you might want to put a little sugar or something in there. At least I think this is the conversation, but cover the flavor. It's kind of bitter was the message I remember. I drank this stuff and it was the most god awful bitter tasting it, it reminded me of lawn clippings kind of and <laughs> you know being an addict for years and years i'm 44 years old now i've drank some pretty nasty shit so you know uh yeah oh, sorry i did i'm not i'm, I'm going to try not to curse too much but like i chugged it down and I was, I was presently at the time I was getting my car fixed up the street. I was getting an oil change or something. And I block away, two blocks away. I'm walking halfway up and that stuff hit me like a ton of bricks. And my friend had said, it's kind of like Vicodin. And I thought that when that hit me, that was kind of like taking maybe 30 milligrams of oxycodone with a half a cup of coffee with it. That's what I remember that feeling like. After that, I had watched a show on Hulu called Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, where this guy goes around and explores drugs all over the world. And there was a Kratom episode on it where he was in, he went to a Kratom bar. And one of the first responses he had when it hit him was, I can't believe something like this is legal. That was the exact feeling I had when that hit me. I was like, I cannot believe this feeling is legal. This feeling has never been legal. This feeling has always been uh, regulated by pharmaceutical companies and the government. And like, but it was, it, I don't know what the science is about what they classify Kratom as, whether they classify it as an opioid or not. As far as I am concerned, it is an opiate. It hits just like one. It gets me high, just like one. And it was when that hit me, it was the same response I had to every opioid buzz that I'd ever gotten for the first time. And there were two other experiences like that, one with Vicodin and one with a large dose of oxycodone, like 20 years later. And it's the same response. It was, this is how my life is going to be for a while. I love this feeling. I'm going to buy this every day. This will be my coffee beverage from now on. And that's that was my first experience with it. And I don't even think I lied to myself, like, I'll only do this once in a while because I I knew my personality. I was like, I'm just going to do this drug all the time and who cares, you know? And I did. Yeah. There's a lot of equivocation in the Kratom advocacy community about whether or not it's an opiate or an opioid. And the science is it's a partial biased agonist. So it's not a full, like, especially with the stimulant effects. And there's some serotonin effects, too. Many people kind of feel like it's like has an SSRI it to it you know it can be very uh powerful and the other um equivocation is well if you take a small amount you know then it's not addictive <laughs> you know so yes if you take <laughs> one gram it, it's not as powerful but <laughs> so yeah it's a little bit like the you know the you know of course it's not up from the poppy plant so it's not a, a true opiate but um, it's a little bit like the debate, you know, is America a democracy or is it a constitutional republic? You know? Yeah, if you wanted to if you want to define opiates exclusively as derivatives from opium, and I think that might be, you're probably mm -hmm. right. That's what it is. Then, yeah, it's not an opiate. Yeah. But I think opioids are 
molecules that mimic that effect that they can make in laboratories like methadone, buprenorphine, fentanyl. They're all opioids, but they're not from opium. Well, I would say, well, Kratom's sort of like that, It's but it's Mother Nature's opioid. All I know is that it hit me just the way every opioid I ever took was hit me. And I think because I hadn't had a lot of it up until that point, I still had virgin opioid brain. You know, when you haven't had it in a while, then you take a couple Vicodins yes. and it feels... I think that's why it hit me so hard. Because it didn't really hit me. It was the chasing the dragon phenomenon because it never really hit me that hard again. But it hit me yeah. hard enough to make me like it. Well, I know you have a long history of drug use and have gone to treatment several times. And could you give us the Reader's Digest version? <laughs> <laughs> it was 1979. I was born at four. No. Uh, so the, the long history of drug abuse summed up essentially as early in childhood, I was highly medicated. My father was a doctor. And, you know, baby boomer parents, you know, that sort of thing. Nick learned very early in life that medicine makes him feel better. When I was, and I, for some reason, I've always been kind of a jackass. I mean, I, I, <laughs> early, like nine, nine years old on to those preteen years, I used to set fire to my G.I. Joes. We were those kids, you know, and I was always mm-hmm. attracted to the punks and the bad guys. And, you know, 11 years old, when I started middle school, I, of course, found like the most troubled after school special kid that went to my school and hung out with him. And the first time I hung out with him, he stole some weed from his parents and we smoked it. And that was the first time I smoked pot. By eighth grade, I was smoking weed probably every day after school. Ninth grade, I had found psychedelics. I was really into like Pink Floyd and the Grateful Dead and all that hippie stuff back in the 90s. That had a resurgence back then. And because we had kind of come out of the Reagan, just say no, you know, sex will kill you, abstain from all things. A lot of us, we didn't really trust adults that much. So it was like, screw you, old people. You know, we're going to do all the drugs. And we never had the sense of this is hurting me. It's just that you're wrong about all this stuff. You're lying to us. So we don't trust you. It's kind of like the Gen X credo, you know? Um, anyway, so I, I think it was, it was 95 or 96 when Vicodin came out as I don't remember exactly when they really started marketing it to doctors, but I remember going in my dad's study one day in his office in my house and there's this little stuffed leopard on his, on his desk and had a little tag Vicodin, you know, they had the little Vicodin leopard there. The, the reps had been over. And I, it was sometime around then where in a cupboard in our laundry room, we had this um, just stash of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of individually wrapped Vicodins. You know, my mom would take one when she needed, when she had a headache every now and then. And they were just in my home. I was about 16 when I had a, an injury on my hand and my dad gave me one for the morning and I put it in my pocket and forgot about it. And then he gave me one for the night and then I put it in my pocket and I, I was out partying, smoking weed or something stupid with my friends. And then I jammed my hand in the door and I said, ouch, that really hurts. Reached my hand in my pocket and found both of them. And I took them both. And then like three minutes later, my hand stopped hurting. 
And then two Vicodins hit me for the first time. And I was like, oh, well, this is my favorite feeling I've ever felt ever. Let's see if we can find more. And mm-hmm. from about 16 on, I would, you know, sporadically take like a Vicodin or two out of that cupboard. Just go to school. Teachers, I was a lot more mellow in high school when I started popping those every now and then. But got away from those a little bit in my 20s when I went to college out in Colorado. I actually was okay in college for a few years. But this horrible span of time happened from like 2003 to 2005, where some of my friends from Michigan and I started manufacturing large quantities of pills using a pill press machine. And it was just, it was just a dark time. We started playing with crystal meth and I am not an upper Charlie. I really, that is not, I'm a, I'm already a spaz. Downers always made me feel the way I wanted to feel. (laughs) So like, I, I've had experiences on crystal meth that you, I will match to any bad acid trip you can throw at me. Like it was horrible, but I won't go into detail and all that stuff, but I had to go back to Michigan to deal with that instead of going and applying for jobs. And, you know, I was full on into my bad drug addiction phase. So I didn't really do anything with what I did for college, which was broadcasting. I never really got into it. Um, but a couple years into that, uh, that same buddy that introduced me to Kratom was living down in Florida and it was his wedding. And some of us went down there and two of us were like, well, this is a great place to live. Why don't we live down here and work construction? So we moved down to Estero, Florida or Fort Myers, Cape Coral area and started building pool cages, lanai's for a couple of years. And that was right at the peak of the Oxycontin painkiller opioid there were pain clinics open everywhere. And at some point, we started buying Oxycontins on the weekends, those big blue, like they were, they were, we would, we would do like maybe 20 or 30 milligrams at a time. But one day uh, I got these two 30 milligram pills for me and my buddy, Kevin. So we each had two and we had never taken 60 milligrams before. We'd only taken like 30 or 40 at a time. He didn't know they were 30s. He took both of them and I told him how much he took. And he was like, "Whoa, dang, man, am I going to die? I'm like, no, but I'm going to go to the loony bin with you. You know, <laughs> took, he fell asleep. He was an alcoholic or alcohol guy and he liked to uh, drink. He didn't like opiates as much as I did. He fell asleep and started drooling. But when those two oxycodones hit me, man, I was like, I was hooked. That was when that was about 2000 seven or eight ish. And that's when I became a junkie. That's when it was like every paycheck I got hunt down the drugs and they were everywhere in Florida. That got me to the point where I got so sick. I ended up having to come home to Michigan. So I went from Michigan to Colorado, Colorado to Michigan, Michigan to Florida. Now Florida, I, I told my dad I was going to join the Navy or something stupid. And he gave me a thousand bucks to get home. I was home for a couple of weeks when they were like, you, you need to go to rehab. Went to rehab, got into the program, got put on Suboxone, which I was on for about five years. And I was clean for about 18 months. And then my kid brother passed away from a substance abuse disorder. He was huffing computer dust off and he, uh, he passed away. And then I was like, okay time to do opiates again. So got into heroin for a little bit. And a couple of my good buddies, 
who are both now kind of in the program. One is very much in the program. One is in and out, but still pretty good. Um, pulled me aside and tried to get me to stop. And I just told him, yeah, sure. My good friend that I'd known for years ended up telling his mom that I was doing this stuff. And she told my parents and then they came and rescued me and took me to rehab again. And they re-induced me on Suboxone that time. And that was the beginning of like a four and a half year fast from drugs and alcohol work. I worked the program pretty good for a couple of years, but then I kind of flaked out on it, which is why I relapsed again. But in that four and a half years, that's when I moved to Los Angeles in about 2015. And that was the last time I'd went to rehab. 2015, I moved out here, went to a couple AA meetings, wasn't really working a program. This city is, in, this city is crazy. It was, I've never been to California before I moved out here. I just got family out here. And I was like, I don't want to live in Michigan anymore. It's not for me. Yeah, I just, I just moved out here with a couple thousand bucks and like, I'm just going to live here. I don't care what happens, but I didn't work a program about a year and a half into, well, maybe two. I was working that job at the restaurant and I was Uber driving on the side. And one night, uh, some, it was like three in the morning. I was giving some rides to these kids and some kid passed me a vape pen and it had weed in it. And he's like, here, hit this. And I hit this. And that was the first drug I'd taken in four and a half years. And Charlie, I tell you, Cannabis is not the drug to relapse on if you've had a lot of sobriety. Like, holy, it was like instant anxiety, instant regret, instant like, oh, you know, when you get stoned and you start feeling all bad about yourself. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that happened. And so since I didn't want to go and take my new, I didn't want to be a newcomer again. because It felt like, oh, God, I had four and a half years and just that one thing I got to take a chip again. And incidentally, that's exactly what I should have done. I should have just walked in and said, mm-hmm. I hit a joint, give me a white chip. It's just a chip. I didn't lose those four and a half years of healing. I just slipped and I need to recommit to the program. That's all those chips mean. And I can't tell you how many times I see people like afraid to go back to a program because they're like, I don't want to be the white chip guy again. I don't want to be that. I've only got a few days. Why? You know, it's it's just no one's no one has ever made me feel inferior for going back to a meeting and saying I slipped. Can I have a newcomer chip? Everyone has always been welcoming and encouraging. And had I just done that, I would not have been introduced to Kratom and I wouldn't have been in this mess that I'm in now. And we wouldn't be having this conversation. That started the long marijuana maintenance program because I said, well, screw it. If I smoked weed once, I may as well smoke it again and get my money's worth. Did that for about a year, and uh, that's when I was finally introduced to Kratom. And I was using that for a couple of years here pretty regularly. I had a pretty regular 15 to 20 gram a day dose, maybe three servings or three doses, morning, noon, or morning, noon, and afternoon. And in 2019, we got the the word that my father was dying of lung cancer. And I had to go back to Michigan again for like seven months in 2019 and smoking weed, taking Kratom and just being around my old haunts with my old buddies. It didn't take me long to start drinking. And in December of that year, I started stealing my dad's hospice drugs, which if you've never been around hospice patients, they give you every drug you could possibly want in a box, like once a week giant bottles of morphine, giant bottles of oxycodone, Ativan, 
every possible way you can administer Valiums and Xanaxes, like every orifice on your body, they give you like this big box. And I decided using the Kratom, I was like, I'm going to take opiates for a month or two and then use the Kratom to get off it. And the weird thing is, is it's exactly what I did. As soon as the opioids, I abused the hell out of them for a month. And then they ran out and I just, okay, there's a couple days where the Kratom didn't really hit me the way it used to. And then after like day three or four, it was just using Kratom again. And I was like, well, this is a miracle drug. I don't ever have to, I can take opiates occasionally throughout my adulthood if I'm ever having a bad time and use this to get off it. It was when I came back to Los Angeles and I had been trying to get into personal training because I, I work out maniacally when I take Kratom, like five hours a day, I will get up, take Kratom lift weights for three hours a day, take more Kratom, study, eat lunch, do this, do that, run three miles. And this is a thing with people in the fitness industry, by the way. People in this industry will take Kratom and just crazily work out. It was a couple months into that after I'd gotten here where I was like, I want to get my life together. I want to get back into the AA stuff. And I had gone to about maybe four or five AA meetings. And this was uh, 2020. And it was obvious to me that Kratom was a drug. It was obvious that I was abusing it. And I started noticing weird things going on with my heart. And we have heart disease in my family. And that scared me enough to the point where I finally made an effort with my sponsors. Like, listen, I got to stop taking this stuff. I'm bringing it in Monday night. I'm going to talk about it. And I brought this box of Kratom into... Uh, my AA meeting, which was uh, actually an outdoor meeting, we had a campfire and everything. It was a stag meeting, all men. And I had probably three to three to four hundred dollars maybe worth of this stuff. Kratom, weed, bongs, some other miscellaneous drug stuff. We were dumping it out. And the, the addiction in me was like, I even said to one of the guys, like, maybe I should just give this all to a homeless dude. And they just started laughing at me. They're like, dude, you're not, you, you shouldn't be walking around with this because the longer you have it in your hand, the more you're going to convince yourself to put a little aside for later. And they just dumped it all into, uh, into one of those, uh, green yard waste bins. And, uh, that was November 23rd, 2020. And I haven't touched it since. So that's my, uh, that's the gist of my drug story. We were doing. Drugs, uh, similar decades, at least in the nineties, but I was going, I, I made it to college. It wasn't until college I had my first drug experience. Um, and my drug use kind of roughly was in the twenty, my twenties. I was using, I was completely sober in my thirties. Can you get a little bit more into just your decision making about when you felt like Kratom, why Kratom wasn't working for you? Okay. So my, my relationship to Kratom is a reluctant, breakup but a necessary one it's like it's like when two people aren't right for each other and you just want to say mm -hmm. goodbye because i do not hate this substance and i i should reiterate like i would said before like i don't want to just for anyone listening i don't want to make this illegal i don't want to make this unavailable for people i don't want to take it away and i certainly don't want the government to schedule one this stuff when there isn't enough research done on it i just want to It'll, I just want to let people know that for me, it is a, a substance of addiction. 
my relationship to it is identical to my relationship with every opioid I have ever taken in my life. Once I start taking it, my entire day is focused on Kratom. So when I wake up, the first thing I do, I, I found a brand of Kratom. I think it was called Bumblebee. They sell them in the stores everywhere. They had like the orange and yellow and green caps. I really liked it. I would have by my bedside on my nightstand, a jar of Kratom and a glass of water. Uh, the capsules, like you were, um, they have like half gram capsules. And so I would take about seven or eight grams before I was like, I would hit my alarm, turn it off. And then I would take like 14 of these capsules or so and just toss them back, hit snooze and then get up. And within a, you know, so I would get my day going. And as soon as that stuff hit me, I would immediately be thinking about, Oh, I can't wait to take Kratom again. Hmm. It was so, it was so constantly on my mind throughout my day. I remember when I used to time box my schedule, when I would plan my day, I would literally write in my agenda, Kratom, did it, you know, uh, play the banjo for 20 minutes, you know, study, train, train so-and-so at this time, train so at this, so-and-so at this time, go to this, Kratom, you know, and I would always be looking forward to that next hit of Kratom. And I think part of the reason why I liked it so much in the beginning was because it, I, it gave me all the weird fun stuff of being an addict, you know, without actually like costing me too much in the beginning. I could go to head shops all over Los Angeles. I'm going to go to Manhattan beach today and go see what kind of Kratom they have there. And it, it seemed to give me such a purpose, like that drug addict purpose. Like I'm going to just keep getting my drug everywhere, but it didn't seem to interfere with how I was performing in every other area of my life. But there were a couple of things that were, I was trying to kind of brush under the rug in my mind, you know, I would get really, really, really angry when I would come down from that stuff. Like I would road rage. I would get furious at stuff. I was often, I was, there were many times I was ill at ease. I was never quite comfortable in my skin. I always had to be moving. I always had to be doing something. Sometimes if I took a little too much, it would give me a little anxiety. It was never quite the great feeling that I kind of had. There was this, uh, how should I say this? Kind of this, this, I was, this story I was telling myself about it in my brain over and over again about how this is just great. But there was these little, this little voice of reason was coming through at times like, this isn't good for you. There's no way you can have something like this without consequences. There's no way this isn't bad for you. This is a story probably worth telling real quick. When I was working at that restaurant, I had developed a, a really big crush on a girl that worked there. And she ended up moving back to New York and dating this guy who ended up being just the love of her life. And I was watching it from a distance. And then time went on. And then it was just we, we maintained a friendship from a distance and talked to her every now and then. One day I went online and I saw a memorial to him and he died on the anniversary of their first date while they were planning on spending their lives together and moving in together. And he had died from metrogynine intoxication, apparently. This was a, a wow. apparently, yeah, apparently a pretty famous story. I'm not going to say their names or anything. When they did the autopsy on him, 
apparently the only substance they found was was the active ingredient in kratom. And I think they said something to the effect of it was long-term kratom abuse that contributed mostly to his dying. And this guy was 27 years old. So this wasn't like, you know, a dude our age, you know, who probably had a, who knows what kind of stuff was going on with him, but relatively young guy. That sort of thing, I started noticing stuff like that happening. And whenever I would go online looking at Kratom, I'd, I'd see the occasional like, this stuff's bad for you. It hurts your liver. It hurts your kidneys. What really got to me was, I think I was working out a couple times and I was running and my heart did some weird stuff that I had never had happen to me before. And like I was saying earlier, we had we have heart disease in our family. So that sort of thing rang the the alarm bells in my brain and it scared me. It was like, I don't know what you call them, palpitations or whatnot, but I felt very strange and almost panicky for a second. Like, I think I might need to call an ambulance, but that came and went. And then I kind of like, okay, cautious optimism, going to keep going. And then I kept taking it and it happened again. So my thoughts on this were like, if I keep taking this, I might have a heart attack. I don't know. Maybe not. Mm -hmm. Maybe that, but that I really, it was the health thing that scared me because I really didn't want to stop taking it, but I was scared to keep taking it. Um, cause I, like my habit the whole time with Kratom, I'd never really exceeded 30 grams a day. I would always taper back down. And I, I, I took those extract shots a few times, but I never liked those as much as I liked the actual powder. And I hear stories like, you know, Kratom addicts taking like 12 of those 12, 15 of those feel free shots every day. I'm like, you're a junkie at that point. Just admit it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And with me, my addiction was always like, I'm the type of guy that could probably take two or three shots of heroin a day for five or six years before I degenerated to that. Like I'm a, I'm a gray man drug addict. Like I, I, I function for a long time and my, my decline is rather slow. We have a saying in AA, you know, it's like, that hasn't happened to me yet. So I just, I, I cover enough times to the point where I was like, I know where this is going if I don't stop. And I'm actually scared at this point in my life that it might hurt me and kill me. At your stag me, when you dumped all the Kratom and other stuff, did you just cold turkey from there? Is that how you yes. did it? Yes, I cold turkeyed. In fact, um, that week I was at about, I, my my intake was starting to go up actually. I was going from like 15 to 20 grams. Now I was up in the 30s. And I was like, okay, so for maybe two days that week, I, I, I dialed it back to about 15. So I wasn't really satisfied with the Kratom buzz that I had for the last couple of days I had it. And then I just went off cold turkey and I got dope sick. I, I've, I've had dope sickness before and that's what this was. It wasn't as, I understand Kratom withdrawals can be horrible depending on, I think it has to do with how much you're taking. Um, where mm -hmm. I was at, it was about a week of insomnia and no energy. And those, you, you've been through this, the creepy crawlies where you just can't sit still. Mm -hmm. uh, those are, th that's the, uh, those are the symptoms that I always try to explain to people about why make, why dope sick is so annoying is because, you know, at least when you're coming off of alcohol, they can sedate you and put you out. But with with opiates, it's there's nothing they can give you other than another opiate. And man, those creepy crawlies, it's like it's like a siren 
just building up underneath your skin that gets louder and louder. And all you can do to make it go away is to jolt your jostle your body about. And then it turns the siren off for like one second. And then it starts getting louder and louder <laughs> again. So you toss and turn and there is no rest. And all you want to do is sleep and you can't sleep. You're too hot. You're too cold. And you're just not in a good state of mind either. And it just sucks. And it was like, it was like that for about five or six days, about a month lethargy, not very active. It felt like somebody had turned my energy dial down to about 45, 50%. But I did start sleeping again after that first week. All right. The thing that sucks about going off drugs, and this is something that I didn't know when I first had gone off them is... When you stop, the withdrawal symptoms don't just stop after the first month. You have this phenomenon called post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which goes on for years sometimes. You know, every now and then you can find yourself in a place in your life where some of those symptoms might come back a little bit for a little while. The depression mm -hmm. might hit at certain times. And with opiates, those first couple of years of staying clean off of an opiate for me is... uh I think, well, the first year isn't as hard as the second to the fifth year. Like those years are always hard because you get back into the doldrums. And that's when the, that's when the personality flaws start coming back. And that's when the mental health stuff starts coming back. And that's when the brain isn't quite healed enough to the point where the dopamine that we make naturally is really affecting me. So stuff like food and sex and all the normal stuff that people like to do, it just doesn't feel quite as good as I remember it. So there's kind of a lot of blah, and it's sort of hard to get through that. And I, I find myself now at three years finally starting to, with the Kratom, have more and more good, positive days where life is vivid and, you know, exciting again. But th there are times where, and it'll go on for months sometimes, where it's it's a, it's a drag. And I really have to cling to my program for dear life because, and I, I don't want to bum people out to the point where they're thinking it's hopeless by saying this, because it's not. You do heal. It's just it takes time and, and some patience. But it does it does happen that way for a lot of people. And it's something that we have to learn to deal with. For me, with, uh, with my recovery, it, a lot of it's learning how to be comfortable not being satisfied or chasing something external all the time that I think is going to make me feel a little bit better than I do right this minute. And to that end, I can say this uh, very honestly. I, recently, I've been working my program a lot better. And having a little baby girl now in my life, seeing her smile, it, it's nothing's lost on me now. That That's actually something that like shines through the doldrums. And there are things in my life that really bring me joy. And I do have a lot of great days now. And working out's been a godsend because that still gives me a, like a good, a good deadlift day will still make me feel pretty elated, but. You know, yeah. I think I think I think you got to have something like that. You have to have a touchstone in your life that you like to get up in the morning for. Could you talk a little bit about your twelve-step program work, um, and maybe briefly about some of the limits of that in terms of related to kratom? So, before I even begin, I'm just going to couch everything in this. I am a 
vehement believer in 12-step programs. I think that they, if whatever, I, I don't know what I believe about, you know, the higher powers in the world, but I, I really do think that that was as close to divinely inspired as you can possibly get. There is something so good and so true and so useful in that program that I think anyone struggling with this uh, issue would be remiss to poo-poo 12-step because I, I have not found anything that works the way that does. I work with the AA Big Book. I go to several AA meetings, Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Los Angeles, there's a lot of AA meetings where you're not going to find too many people that are just alcoholics anymore. You're going to find people that drank all the time, but they also did every other drug. So there's a lot of AA meetings that are very open to people from other uh, substance abuse backgrounds. That is such a huge part of who I am as a person now. I, I, I find it hard to separate myself from it when I'm describing who I am as a person because it, it, I'm not the same man I was before I got introduced to 12-step. And what's really great about it is you're always welcome and they're everywhere. And you realize very quickly that you're not alone in this and there is a way out. And you see people who were in way worse condition than I ever was getting so much good out of life after doing this. It's very inspiring to be there. But they, like they say, it works if you work it. I uh, currently am attending two what are called Pills Anonymous meetings. So what they do and what's kind of fashionable in L.A. at the time is the, right now is they uh, most of these meetings use the AA big book, whether or not these little satellite substance abuse communities have their own big books or not. N.A., of course, Narcotics Anonymous is its own thing. That's but like Heroin Anonymous, Crystal Meth Anonymous, all those anonymouses. Most of those meetings that I've been to, they still use the AA big book because alcoholism is addiction to alcohol. It's just the drug of choice is alcohol. The same stuff applies. The reason I reached out to you and wanted to get involved was because despite how much I get out of those groups, there aren't too many people in those meetings that I go to that are addicted to Kratom the way I am. Kratom is my drug of choice. I have done meth. I have done Oxycontin. Those were my drugs of choice for periods of my life. Weed, alcohol even, but nothing that I have ever done has hooked me quite like Kratom did. It is a very strange drug. I, 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 it would almost be worth having a whole hour just talking about how strange of a drug Kratom is in comparison to some of the others. I get a lot out of just hearing your show and hearing some of the guests on here talk about Kratom because it's like, okay, I, I think these are my people. I'm still going to those other meetings, but I really do believe that it, it's, it's time. Kratom's been around long enough to the point where I think we need some Kratom Anonymous meetings or meetings that are focused exclusively on Kratom addiction because despite the fact that I think addiction is pretty similar across the board. It's the little specifics about the difference between a crackhead and an alcoholic that makes someone wanted to go to a crackhead's meeting versus there's going to be things a crackhead does to get their crack that an alcoholic doesn't do, you know? And the stories is after a couple of years of sobriety get pretty amusing when you hear them. I find that I don't always relate to a lot of the stuff the alcoholic goes through in the meeting. And there's there are times where I'm just like, 
sitting there kind of spacing out. Whereas somebody mentions Kratom, I get so much out of re the relationship that I have with that person. It's like, you know what I'm going through. You know what it's like to go into a gas station, reach for a five-hour energy shot, and see immediately like 12 inches away from it a feel-free shot. Like there's a gas station next to my house where those wretched feel-free black label shots are sitting there. And all I have to do to get a, to get Kratom in my system instead of a five hour energy, which I like to take occasionally is just grab this little thing. And I don't even have to get more bills out of my pocket. I just have to tap my phone and it's just right there. And that's becoming a thing with Kratom, a legal opioid. I used to make jokes in, in AA meetings because it's like, I can't always relate with you guys because I don't know what it's like to go to a grocery store and see my drug of choice everywhere. If I walked into, you know, Walmart and saw morphine lollipops and all sorts of various opioid products hanging from an, from the shelves in an entire aisle, I would have a hard time. But that's becoming a thing with Kratom. It is so easily accessible in some communities. And I, I think I was telling you before the show, like right where I work, they have a Kratom Kava bar right up. I walk past it every day. It's becoming a thing. And I don't see any warnings on any of these, in any of these establishments. Every now and then I'll get an advertisement on Instagram for feel free shots. And I'll, out of curiosity, I'll click on it. And the next thing I know, I'll get inundated with shots of joy and all these, the Kratom products are just being thrown at me. Not a single warning on any of them. Just, this is great. This is euphoric feel buzzed without being drunk or something like that they always say and it's just just feel like they uh that it's time we really start making it known to the population of this country that this is a drug it's addictive and i think we do need some kratom anonymous stuff going on at this point yeah that's exactly the the whole impetus of the podcast was exactly that what is your go-to music to turn your day around. Okay, so I have a playlist that I put on as soon as I'm done with work, and it starts off with Singing in the Rain by Gene Kelly, and it immediately goes <laughs> into Tenderness by General Public, followed by Lips Like Sugar by Echo and the Bunnymen, and ZZ Top's Just Got Paid. I've got some Lord in there. I've got some Beck, Devo. I've got Ray Charles, and I've got uh, a whole bunch of hippie stuff. So I'm kind of all over the place now, but I, I I started getting into these weird mixes when I was making playlists for my uh for my workout routines. So that but that's my that's my works over good day drive home in sunny Los Angeles kind of music. So always feel good singing Mac the Knife at top of my lungs in five o'clock traffic. <laughs> yeah, I I definitely have lips like sugar and the hippie music probably on on my playlist. So. What is your top tip or tips for someone getting ready to quit Kratom? If someone were to come to me with the same problem, the same place I was, I would say get help and be honest about how much of your life is orbiting this substance. If it's something you can just put down and not touch again, then you're what we call a normie. Go to a damn 12-step meeting. I am a 12-step guy to the bone. I I cannot emphasize that enough. Just go there, 
do what they say. When they start making the sponsorship announcements, find the nearest person to you that raised their hand and said they'd be willing to sponsor people. Grab that person and say, I'm addicted to Kratom. I need help. Will you sponsor me? Can I call you? Can I talk to you? What do I do? And um, even if that person doesn't know what Kratom is, even if they don't have the same experience you do, they're going to have the resources available to them to at least get you pointed in the right direction. And it's the credo of the 12-step program to help those of us who need help. So that's what they're there for. Don't be afraid. Don't second guess yourself. Just do it. Just go in there, grab someone, help me, get me some information, help me quit this stuff. Cause I'm not going to, if you're like me, you're not going to be able to do it alone. You're going to need a support group. And that's, that's pretty much all I could say about that. Well, thanks, Nick. It's been great talking to you. I really appreciate having you on. My pleasure. Great to meet you, Charlie. I love your show. I think that what you guys are doing is just amazing. I try to catch up all the, on all the episodes as they come out. So you're doing the good work, man. Thank you for having me on and letting me be of service to the Kratom recovery community today. Thanks. We'll stay in touch. Now for Kratom in the Headlines. Hello, quitters. It's your fellow friendly neighborhood recovering Kratom addict, Decima. Today, I wanted to talk a little bit about a very controversial topic that is the legality of Kratom, particularly in my state of Mississippi. Uh, ever since Kratom has gained in popularity and the AKA uh, American Kratom Association successfully lobbied to stop the FDA and DEA from scheduling Kratom as a Schedule One controlled substance back in 2016, this has been an ongoing battle between both sides all across America. As for my state, Kratom is not legal everywhere in Mississippi because Kratom is not federally regulated. It's up to each state or even county to develop and enforce legislation. Because of this, things like age requirements for using Kratom are constantly changing. Mississippi is one of the states that is divided within. Making Kratom legal in the state, but not all cities, counties, or municipalities within the state. In Mississippi, the legalities of Kratom are very complex. Between 2021 and presently, Mississippi lawmakers have attempted many times to take Kratom off the shelves in Mississippi or to at least regulate it. Bills to ban or restrict Kratom are brought to the floor, rejected, and then as quickly as the bill dies, a new one with the same purpose is introduced. The most recent attempt to ban Kratom in Mississippi was in 2023 with the introduction of House Bill 5, House Bill 364, House Bill 883, and Senate Bill 2244 all of which failed to pass. One Mississippi Senator, Jeff Tate, has been very vocal in his attempt to regulate Kratom in Mississippi. When I reached out to him, he expressed to me that this issue is very important to him, but there just doesn't seem to be enough people who are willing to speak out here. 
with the stigma surrounding addiction and the constant attacks from Kratom advocates that speaking out can often attract, this does not surprise me at all personally. Currently, there are 30 counties and towns within Mississippi that have banned the sale, use, and possession of Kratom, while many more are currently lobbying to follow suit. At this point, who knows what the future looks like for Kratom in Mississippi, but I can't help but wonder if the fact that quite a few Mississippi Kratom stores are owned by a Biloxi councilman has anything to do with the opposition that Mississippi faces with every single attempt to regulate this substance here. Perhaps this will change now that the councilman, Robert L. Deming III, is currently being indicted on charges related to a raid at his home and CBD and Kratom stores in Mississippi and North Carolina back in January of this year. Deming owns six of the candy shop stores across Mississippi and North Carolina. A federal grand jury indicted Deming on two counts of conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute a controlled substance and one count of destruction, alteration, or falsification of records in a federal investigation. If you ask me, the whole thing stinks as badly as Kratom addiction, but it is a beautiful sight to see one of these corrupt players finally being held accountable. Let's hope that there are more to follow suit. So back in July, I actually decided to speak even if my voice was shaking. I addressed the city council in my city of Pascagoula. It was important to me that lawmakers here in my city are aware of the dangers of Kratom and its lack of regulation so that they are better armed to address this issue and continue to fight for these laws that are so very important for public safety substance. I don't know if my voice will make a difference in the end, but I will continue to do my part to use it to spread awareness. And I also encourage all of you to do the same by reaching out to your local senators and council members. You never know who may listen and the changes you could prompt. Happy healing, quitters. Resource of the week. This time we're going to have Nick, our guest, give us his top exercises that he would recommend for somebody that's withdrawing from Kratom in the early days that would help them get revigorated when they just want to stay there and lay in bed in misery. Okay. So the number one thing, if you do want to move your body around, the number one thing that I would recommend based on my experience and what I went through and what I know as a trainer and as a fitness guy, uh, I would say get out of your house and go for a couple of walks just because if you're like me, your energy is going to be low as heck. And if you try to do anything super intense, you might find yourself feeling really bad and making your situation worse. Get out of your house, get some fresh air and experience your environment. Have a plan. I'm going to walk up the street and back. Just do that a couple times a day. Get your body moving. You will respond really well to that. Um, and I, I wouldn't say push it anything. I would I would say don't push it beyond that for a while. If you feel a little bit more uh, motivated, then I don't know, maybe go go hit up a gym or something like that. Take a yoga class or something. 
I wouldn't be doing the heavy lifting for a little while, at, le- at least a couple of weeks. I did. So, but walking, get outside, walk, 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 move your body. The fresh air, there's just something about being outside in, in the environment where you live. It does something for the heart. It does something for the soul. So that's my answer. Thanks, Nick. And yeah, everybody, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, check us out on social media or send us an email to creativesobriety at gmail.com. And until next week, keep it creative free. Mm-hmm.